0: Welcome to The Pen and the odd. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Adsham at Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Mishpatim, taking another look at an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth.
1: Did you ever get in a a fight with someone or an argument, uh, even when you were a kid, where you just saw red and you weren't thinking rationally, you just wanted to to respond and hurt that person.
0: Yeah, I had a few fist fights in my day as a kid. I uh, didn't always come out on the winning end, but I did. And, um, you know, as an adult, I can think of situations where I was so angry that, you know, I, I really wanted to do something. I really wanted to hurt or sue at the, you know, and um, I can think of instances where I thought somebody had treated me so badly that I wanted them to pay for the, what they had done. Um, so
1: yeah.
0: I'm not without, <laughs> I've had, I've had a, few, a, a few angry moments for sure.
1: Yeah, I I grew up, uh, I have an older brother, and he used to torture me fairly regularly as a kid. And I just remember wanting to really hurt him in in just this rage that kind of comes over you. And um, the reason I thought about it is that in our portion this week, the portion of Mishpatim, which is the earliest Jewish law code, we have a very famous statement, "Ein, ein shen shen, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's right in this Torah portion, which kind of talks about everything from a goring ox to all kinds of ritual laws. But this law, this this idea, has a real staying power in our society. We often, When you hear those words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, what goes through your mind? What do you think about it? Well, I, I
0: guess one of the things I think about is, is criminal justice and um, the courts and how we decide who should be punished and how sh- they should be punished. You know, I was, as a young reporter, I, I covered plenty of crimes and I covered plenty of trials and I visited prisons and I, I even, you know, I'm horrified still to this day to talk about it, but I witnessed an execution at oh, the wow. uh, Angola Penitentiary in Louisiana, somebody who I had interviewed many times and who's, I had interviewed the families of, of the, of both sides, the victim of the crime and the perpetrator of the crime. And then I was asked, uh, you know, they they always pick a couple of reporters to, to be witnesses to the execution. I was asked, and after much deep thought, I agreed to do it because I felt like it was my duty as a reporter to see the story through to the end. And I've always regretted it, to be honest, because I feel like I was complicit in a horrifying process that um, made me even more than ever adamantly opposed to the death penalty. I'm still haunted by that, by the fact that I watched such a thing. I watched, um, you know, the government taking a, a man's life. Um, but I guess to, um, you know, answer your question, the first thing that comes to mind is how we decide how people should be punished. And, and, um, in that case, very vividly, I had to, I had to wrestle with that.
1: You had interviewed the the person who was executed right. multiple times. Was the person guilty of the crime or were you convinced of their innocence? In other words, is your horror, regarding the death penalty at large or or that you felt that there was a travesty of justice going on
0: no he was guilty uh, he admitted he was he had done he had committed a murder and um i i don't think that's the the central fact here for me i feel like i still have a hard time with the government deciding that that it should take a life in response to someone else taking a life that's just I had a hard time with that.
1: I still do. And yet it says a life for a life. Right. That's part of that. That's part that that comes from this verse. So let's talk about the logic of the Torah. Right. Let's see how it builds. An eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth, and we see the verse building, and it comes to a life for a life. The logic is, is that if someone forfeits, let's say a tooth, the only way to, to have justice is for the perpetrator to lose something, either that object or the or the value of that object, right? So if you take someone's life, that person can no longer enjoy life in any way shape or form right they can't look at the sunlight they can't see the setting of the sun they can't talk to a loved one they can't read a book and have that moment uh where you just you know are just enraptured in 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 reading or on and on it goes and yet the person who took their life does so how do you how do you make sense out of that right where's the justice of simply taking the person off the streets and saying, well, he won't be a threat to the larger society when in fact he's not being actually adequately punished for the murder itself. And I'm here. I'm, this isn't Michael Siegel talking. I'm simply using the logic of the Torah.
0: Sure. But I, you know, the logic of the Torah tells us that thou shalt not kill. That's I, that's one of those 10 commandments that I impressed you well with so well last week. Um, and, um, I think that what that's saying is that we should expect, our, we, should, we should be better than the, than the killer, the person who violates that commandment. Again, I'm arguing here, but uh, we'll discuss whether the, uh, the rest of the Torah supports my argument, but that we should be better than the person who commits the initial crime, the, the killer, that we as a society should show that we understand the, the, what's important and not take another life.
1: I really like what you're saying, except that the Torah doesn't. Right. Because what the Torah is saying is something a little different. And you're saying we're better than that. That person went to their animal instincts and they simply killed. Actually, beyond it's not even their animal instincts. It's their inhumane instincts. Let's so not defame animals. Animals don't actually kill for sport. This is a human failing. And so... If we, as a a country or as a state, execute people, we are on the same level as the murderer. I think that's the logic you're offering, right? Yes, absolutely. And when I think what the Torah is saying is something different. The Torah is interested not so much in us bettering ourselves. It's interested in justice. It's a very laser-focused. What's the justice? Here's the crime. What's the punishment? You took a life, you give up your own life. And by the way, I just want to just dispel the notion that the Torah actually was condoning poking people's eyes out. There's the whole issue of compensatory damages. And the rabbis talk a great amount about this. What this law is concerned about, let's say a wealthy person lost their eye in some sort of fight or something else with a person not of the same means that that you could take that other person's life. Well, he took my eyes, so I killed him. No, the Torah says, the punishment has to fit the crime. The punishment has to fit the crime. And so does the punishment of, let's say, life imprisonment or the possibility of parole in 20 years or 30 years, does that fit the crime? That's the question I, that, that I'm putting forward to you.
0: Yeah, and um, the, the the tricky part here is that we are human beings and we are flawed and we are driven by anger and by jealousy and by so many different emotions that Justice is not a science, and it—it it, so much of it is tied up in our feelings. And sometimes there's this feeling for revenge. Sometimes there's this feeling like I have to be made right because you hurt me. And there's no way to, to judge these things in an objective way, I feel like. And, and I guess the courts try to do that to some extent, but it's impossible. And I think that's um, why we need these higher principles to try
1: to guide us. My mind is racing with examples of this. I want to say that the state of Israel actually does not have a death penalty. Mm -hmm. Eichmann was one of the people that was killed through the the death penalty. And the other was uh, John de Munich. He worked in one of the camps and was known, you know, as being particularly brutally went on a very long trial. But when he was sent to Israel, he was given the death penalty in 1988. But Israel itself doesn't follow the law of the Torah as I'm suggesting that it does. So I think that there's a lot to what you're saying. I'm just I, I'm just trying to carry out the logic a little bit. You know, we can talk about a society, but how do family members of the deceased, of the person who was murdered, live with the notion that the person who took that person from them, the person they can never talk to again, how do they live with the fact that that person who uh, committed this crime is still walking around? incarcerated nonetheless, but still walking around.
0: Right. And, you know, in the case of that execution that I covered in Louisiana, I spent time with the family of the victim of this murder that put someone on death row. And they expressed that really beautifully, that they felt like their husband and their father's life had been taken by this person who didn't care about them and didn't care about the, the value of life, and that he should give his life to. Um, and that it would, I think they felt like there would be some justice in that, and that they needed that to to feel like they had been somewhat they could ever be remotely compensated for their loss, but I think they felt like they needed that to, to move on and to feel like justice had been done and I can understand that and yet and yet I think we should be better It's easy for me to say right because I wasn't the one wounded I wasn't the one who lost a loved one but I had another experience like that as a reporter where um, after 9 eleven the government came up with a program to um, discourage people from suing. They created a fund to compensate the victims so that there wouldn't be thousands of cases uh, going through the courts with everybody suing everybody. And I found a woman, a young woman whose husband had died in um, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania And um, she refused to take the settlement. She was one of the very few people who refused to take the settlement. She wanted to sue. She wanted this to be carried out in court. She wanted people to answer. She wanted to hear their answers for what had gone wrong, for all the mistakes that had been made. And it was a very emotional decision for her. And she acknowledged that, that, you know, it would have been a lot easier to move on with her life and just take the money that the government was offering. But she felt like she needed more.
1: And I can understand that too. Because her loved one deserved to have those who made errors along the way answer for that. That's right.
0: It's an emotional, it's not logical,
1: and you can't apply logic to it when it's your own loved one that's been right. lost, or when, when it's you that's been hurt. Israel supports what you're saying. When they uh, did away with the death penalty, they, they, they said it was on the basis of consideration of humanitarian, liberal, and progressive views of penology. And so what I want to underscore here. The rabbis themselves do exactly what you want, which, which you're advocating. you very solid Jewish ground here, because what the rabbis did was they ha- here they have the law and the Torah. The law and the Torah is about as clear as clear can be, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for a life, right? So how do you how do you adjudicate anything different than that? And the rabbis, what they did was they made the guilt for the death penalty almost impossible they legislated it almost out of existence in other words in order to be guilty of the death penalty you had to have two witnesses that stated that someone had told the would be perpetrator that if you do this you will receive the death penalty you know you don't do this because you're going to be punished and right but if you don't have that then there is doubt about it, right? And they have all kinds of other laws as to what people saw, what they witnessed, and that affects whether or not you can give the death penalty. Because even going back 2,000 years, this is in the Talmudic era, the rabbis were very, very, uh, they, they were very concerned about the laws of society and the brutality of society. And they lived, you know, amidst the Romans. And the Romans would regularly crucify people, not simply the savior of Christianity, but that was their capital punishment, and a person who was being crucified would be on the cross for weeks at a time in agonizing pain, and this was their way of warning you, this will happen to you if you break the law or you can murder somebody or if you are seen as an enemy of the state. And they lived in that society. And so the rabbis react to that, I think, in part. We want to be better than that, to use the words of Jonathan and I. We want to be better than that. This is the challenge that we live with to, to this very day. How do you look at the Torah where you have compensatory damages? And how do we look at our own society without becoming brutes? But where what happens to justice in the middle? Well, that's the question.
0: Yeah, it's tricky. And we know that um, that deterrent effect that the um, crusaders were going for and that um, many politicians have um, trumpeted as a defense for the death penalty is not really much of a deterrent because we execute plenty of people and um, crime continues. So I guess I'll go back to just saying, let's, let's be better. We can do better.
1: It's for the purpose of the evolution. In other words, we are not automatons. We are not uh, literalists. So when we look at the Torah, what we are, we're not only listening to the words of Torah and following them, but the words of Torah evolve through us. They evolve through us. And I think that your argument is part of that evolutionary cycle. Yeah, we're struggling with it. And I'm, I'm happy to have you helping me struggle with it. And me as well. Thank you.